Good morning. We are glad you are here. If you're a visitor, we want to welcome you. We, we count this time each week as a really special time. I mean, we're, we're gathering together as those who have Christ in common. We're gathering together to hear from our Lord who still speaks to us. We're gathering together um, to know that um, when we sing praises, when we offer them up, our, our God actually hears those and is, is in fact enthroned on the praises of his people. And so this time of corporate worship each week is a really remarkable time. So if you're a visitor with us today, we, we really count it a privilege to worship with you. In fact, why don't everyone just go ahead and stand and do the meet and greet, shake a hand next to you kind of thing. Go ahead, stand up, stand up, stand up, and make sure everyone around you knows that you're glad, they're glad, you're glad they're here. Grab a seat. It's enough all that. Enough. We're going to be in Hebrews 11 today. Um, part of our journey together is a journey through Hebrews 11. And so um, I want to remind you as, as we go through um, these faith photographs, which I'm going to explain in a minute, that all of our messages are online. So like next week's July 4th. I was going to have everyone raise their hand if you plan on not being here, and then I was going to just shame you publicly. Um, but what I want you to know is that if you're not going to be here, if you weren't here last week to hear Brad's message on Abraham or the weeks before when Ben was preaching, make it a point to, to get online and, and, uh, and listen to those messages. That's why we have them there, so you don't have to miss um, if by crazy chance you can't be here on a Sunday morning. So uh, today we're going to be continuing our series titled Faith Photographs, so let's pray and we'll do that. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Um, you are perfectly faithful to your promises. My prayer this morning is that we would enjoy that, that you would teach us, that you would inform us, that you would encourage us. Lord, we also want to pray for those around our city who are meeting as local churches and just pray. Lord, this morning, I just want to pray in general. I pray for the local churches, that they are enjoying you, that pastors are walking well with their wives and letting their ministry and their home to their wife and their children um, be first, and that they would be serving the body out of the overflow of that. I pray that for my own life, for the pastors here at Crosspoint. I pray ultimately that, um, that the church would be salty, bright, aromatic, as your word says, uh, here locally, and that people would be changed from it that the long arm of evangelism would indeed be a healthy church and that that would result in lots of conversations each week about a God who is very real and very active and definitely has a plan for this world. Lord, we also pray for our local government, that they would rule in such a way, and not just our local government, but the government of the country, that they would rule and lead in such a way um, to where uh, there would be much opportunity for the forward movement of your kingdom. And sometimes that doesn't always mean ease and comfort for us, as we'll consider this morning. But I pray that, uh, that they would be seeking wisdom from you because we know that ultimately that is what is best. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
we'll be continuing our faith photograph series. And essentially what we're doing in this faith photograph series is we are working through Hebrews 11 and we are considering, enjoying, studying the faith of those who have lived and died before us. By God's design, you need to know that this is a worthwhile process. And I would actually offer that going through Hebrews 11 and considering each of these faith photographs is part of the process of the let us encouragement from the previous chapter. Remember chapter 10, let us not neglect to meet together. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. Let us draw near. So what I mean is that chapter 10 encourages us to consider these non-negotiables of our faith that should always be in play. They're things that we shouldn't allow to be replaced along our journey and be explained away or traded for other things. Chapter 10 represents or presents a, a high call to pursue holiness and to put sin to death. And then what chapter 11 does is it presents an example of those who had great faith. It gives us an example of those who are in fact commendable and who are worth modeling. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11 if you have not already turned there. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we'll be considering Sarah and her faith photograph. But before we dive into the the faith photograph of Sarah, I would like to make a confession to start the morning off. My confession is that I think Hebrews is hard. I, when Ben said he was going to preach to it, I thought, are you sure? You think it's a good idea? It's hard. It is a difficult book. It is sobering. It's challenging. As I read about these heroes of the faith, I struggle with feeling like my faith isn't as strong as it should be. As I read about these heroes of the faith that just did these amazing things for the glory of God, just forsaking the world altogether, I feel sometimes like my faith is small, like it's not as strong as it should be. I was trying to think about something that would illustrate that, and it's the same feeling I get when I have breakfast with Bill Ruth. (laughs) Almost every time I leave breakfast with Bill, I feel as though I'm not as convinced of the gospel as I should be. So in the book of Hebrews, how that plays out is I see Abel giving this acceptable offering and getting murdered for it by his own brother. The first two offspring first, were our first murderer and our first martyr. And it, it is hard because it reminds me of what it means to be hated by the world. And it's challenging. I see Noah building the ark for a hundred years. And I'm reminded of how many times I've started the dang McShane Bible reading guide, only to fizzle out within a few weeks. I think of Noah on the ark with his family for the better part of a year in a flood and a bunch of animals. And I think about how absolutely impatient I get after about five hours in the car with my four children. I see Abraham leaving everything that was familiar, and the thought of doing that is very hard and very intimidating. I confess these things to you this morning because I think that it's good to be honest about our faith. I think that's part of what this faith photograph series needs to do. It's good to be honest about our faith or maybe about our lack of faith. It's really good to identify areas where growth is needed. It's good to identify areas of weakness in our own lives. And what we do is we identify these areas of weakness and we match them up with God's promises. 
and we prayerfully pursue growth in faith and growth in holiness. That's the goal of what we're doing as we walk through the hall of faith. Identify those areas where you're not as faithful. If you look at these photographs, you're like, good grief, I could never do that. Say, no, 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 we serve the same God that they served. And so let's take those areas of unfaithfulness and let's match them up with God's promises. But in order to do that, we have to be honest about our weaknesses. We have to be honest about areas that need attention. We have to be honest about areas where we're moving forward in unbelief and we're not doing anything about it. As we walk through this hall of faith and gaze upon these portraits of those who had great faith, allow it to challenge you, allow it to sober you, but know that the goal is growth in holiness and growth in faith. I don't leave my breakfasts with Bill Ruth thinking, I don't ever want to do that again. I leave thinking, I need to have breakfast with him again next week. So for the fourth week in a row, make sure you're in Hebrews 11. And let's read Hebrews 11 verses 11 through 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. I have three daughters, and just, it's a side note, but I just want to say it up front. Women, girls, look to Sarah as an example of great faith. Look to Sarah as one who is worth modeling. What she did was absolutely remarkable, and it completely affects everyone sitting here today, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But this isn't all just about the men of the faith. Today we're talking about a woman of magnificent, huge, amazing faith. It wasn't perfect, but she was very, very faithful. And so it is commendable. And this is, a, this is a lady who is worth modeling in her faithfulness. So it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So we're going to have, there, I mean, it lays out three perfect preaching points. So our, our outline, our map for the morning is this. One, faith receives power even when the conditions seem unfavorable. Number one, faith receives power even when the conditions seem unfavorable. Number two, because God is faithful to his promises. And then the third part we'll consider is, therefore, you exist, we exist, like sand and stars. So that's our outline for the morning. So the first one, faith receives power even when the conditions seem unfavorable. Are there any ethnic Israelites with us this morning? Just by a show of hands, are there any ethnic Israelites? We've got one in the back. I see your hand. You in the green shirt. Yes. No ethnic Israelites. I don't want to make assumptions about who's here this morning, but what I want to make sure we see is that if none of us are ethnic Israelites, we are all very much on the same page. And this verse speaks to that page that we're on. For those of us who are not ethnic Israelites, yet we call ourselves followers or children of God, we are what Scripture refers to as children of the promise. You may not have known that. If you're not an ethnic Israelite and you're a Christian, you are what is called children of the promise. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Romans 9, 8 through 9 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
And listen to what the promise is. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. Our story is the story of a people. Your faith is, by God's design, supposed to be much bigger than you. Our story is the story of a people. In the garden, we began as Adam and Eve. Over the course of time, God preserved humanity through the flood via Noah and his family, and eventually God chose a man named Abraham through whom he would bless all the nations of earth. What that means, is this thing feeding back crazy or going whoom, 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 or is it all in my head? Because i got a lot of junk in my head right now. Okay, fantastic. So that means if you're hearing it, it's in your head too. Eventually God chose a man named Abraham through whom he would bless all the nations of earth. If this promised child that we're talking about in these verses, it says, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age and she considered him faithful who had promised. God promised her a child. And if this promised child is never born, what I want us to see this morning is that none of us receive forgiveness for our sins. You may think you have a lot of big problems in your life. What you need to know is your biggest problem is your sin. And if this promised child is not birthed forth from Sarah's womb, none of us sitting here have forgiveness for our sins. None of us have hope for an eternity with a very great God. We're separated if this child of the promise doesn't come through. What we need to see this morning is that this promise is not only important to Abraham and Sarah, but very much for us as well. So I want you to feel free as we walk through this to climb into the suspense of the story because if little baby Isaac isn't born, you're done. So we can all climb into the suspense together. Let's go ahead and do that by turning to Genesis 15. This section of Genesis and Hebrews is, are the only two sections we're going to be in this morning. So go ahead and keep your finger in Hebrews or put a tab in it or whatever. But turn over to Genesis 15. Because our first thing that we said this morning is that faith receives power even when the conditions are unfavorable. So what were the unfavorable conditions? Some of us have heard the story of Abraham and Sarah a thousand times. Listen closely this morning. If you have ears to hear, listen. If you have eyes to see, watch. Because God shows us new things no matter how many times we've heard these Bible stories before. But the, the question I want you to consider is what were the unfavorable conditions? Why is power needed? Faith receives power even in unfavorable conditions. Why is power needed? People get pregnant all the time. What's different about this circumstance. Why is this circumstance different and why is power needed? So look at Genesis 15, 1 through 6. This is where this story started that we're engaging in Hebrews 11. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. His name was still Abram at this point in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. What we're seeing here is what, Ab- what Brad preached on last week, that Abram was called from his homeland to go forth. At this point, he's gone forth, and he has been very victorious in war. He has really taken some nations that, he would, otherwise, that would otherwise prove very powerful, and he has sort of handed their rear end to them. And it has been amazing, and he's met in the valley with the kings, and God has done exactly what he said, and he has made Abraham's name great so that he will be a blessing. 
God will make some men's name, names great so that they will be a blessing. And that's what God is doing with Abraham. And so he has had lots of success and victory. He's moving forward faithfully. And God comes to him and says, I will bless you. Your reward shall be great. And Abram goes straight to, but I have no children. That's where he goes to. He's already looking at God's blessing and saying, how, how is that blessing going to play out if I have no children? He goes on to say, And Abram said, in verse 3, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Listen to what God said to him. This man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Just imagine for a moment what that must have been like for Abram to hear the words of the Lord say, Don't worry, Abram. Your own son, I hear what you're worried about, your own son will be your heir. Your very own son. And he brought him outside. So God essentially takes Abraham, Abram at this point, brings him outside. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars. He, he just told him to do something he can't do. You ever do that with your kids? All right, y'all, let's count the stars. They, they lose track at some point because they're innumerable. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. This is so massive. This is such a big moment in our story as a story of a people. It's such a big moment in not just Christian history, but the history of the world. Abram, who is childless and very old in age, look up. So shall your offspring be. And look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham started off saying, I don't see it. And then God said, look up. And Abraham said, okay. And he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted to him as righteousness. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. Let's see how this story continues. Now Sarai, she's not yet Sarah, they haven't got their new names, Abram's wife had borne him no children. So we've moved forward, but there's still no baby Isaac. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see her perspective. God's made a promise, but she's saying, you know what, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So what should we do here? Should we continue to wait faithfully? Or should we do what a lot of us do? And let's try to take this into our own hands and come up with a solution. And so she says, It may be that I shall obtain children. Um, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, like an, a fool, listened to the voice of Sarai. So they tried to solve this problem of, okay, we got God's promise, and now I'm not seeing it because the Lord has prevented me from having children, so why don't you go make a baby with my servant? That's a bad idea. He should not have listened to his wife at this point. He should have led her. In fact, one very commendable thing about Sarah, if you look at it, she really didn't have all that great of a shepherd. Y'all might be thinking, you're talking about Father Abraham, Scott. That is Father stinking Abraham. What are you saying? Dude, 
He put her through the ringer. He did not lead her well at all moments. But he had great faith. This is not her best moment, but what we're going to see is that she has great faith too. Look at 17, 1 through 8. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He's speaking to a man who has never been a father. He's 99 years old. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. <clears throat> no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And listen to this. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And skip down to verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Do you hear the specificity there? I know you already tried to figure this out on your own by getting a son named Ishmael through a servant named Hagar, but that was your plan, and your plan will not suffice. I will give you a son by her. You two will be the ones who will make that son. I will give you a son by her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? It's like he's saying, Hey, God, did you look at the factors before you put this plan together? Where were you like, I don't know, 80 years ago? When we were in our prime. I'm a hundred. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, listen, he's still trying to put his plan. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, <laughs> no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So, at this point, Abraham seems convinced enough. His faith was counted righteous. He believed God. They worked through some of the issues. God clarified some things that he needed clarity on. And he's okay. At this point, Abraham's on board. Let's, let's look at where Sarah is. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So there he is, the heat of the day. sitting. In, it's like a guy sitting on his patio in his rocking chair. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your, ser your servant. If you're going this way, stop. Don't pass us by. O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick. (laughs) He did what every guy does. Let me make you something. Sarah, make him something. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the, young, to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. That's a big, that's a big birth announcement, isn't it? We get on Facebook. Is it blue balloons? Is it pink balloons? How about God showing up? This time next year, you're going to have a baby. Boom. Best birth announcement ever. He wins. Nails it. About this time next year. Your wife will have a son. This was the child of the promise. This was the promise we talked about in Romans 9. And like any good wife, Sarah was eavesdropping. <laughs> Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. They're, not much, they're so similar to the way we move and act. I mean, these aren't like crazy, alien, faithful people. They're human. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. What that means is she was as likely to have a baby as I am. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was advanced in years, so Sarah laughed to herself. Ha! What? What did God just say? Uh, Okay. See you in a year. Like a hundred. She laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Shall I have the pleasure of having a baby? I haven't ever had a baby. And you're telling me this is going to happen. Ha. The Lord said to Abraham, I love how the Lord holds him responsible for what his wife just did. It's sobering. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? This is not a big, deep theological point, but something you can sort of put in your, in your pocket to take with you. God can hear through walls. He, he knows. He can see through trees, too. So... The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. She denied it. But look at this. She was afraid. And God said, no, but you did laugh. She didn't, she, she wasn't able to fix her first mistake with another mistake, which is what we oftentimes try to do, but rather she said, I didn't laugh, and, and God holds her accountable, and he disciplines her as his child. He says, no, 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 you did laugh. 
I mean, if you've ever gotten caught in a sin, you know how sort of shameful that feels. I mean, here, you, I mean, she, the guard's down, vulnerable. Oh, yeah, you're God. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I laughed. I laughed. So what I want us to see here is that there's accountability, there's discipline, and there's even unbelief on behalf of Sarah at first. I want you to notice what Sarah's reason was for unbelief. What was Sarah's reason for unbelief? Logic. Y'all see this? Her reason for unbelief was reason, like the laws of nature. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. It'd be like God saying, Scott, I want you to go into the NBA. (laughs) Really? The laws of nature would offer otherwise, dear Lord. What are you talking about? And so before we're too hard on Sarah and be like, I cannot believe that woman scoffed at the Lord. Her reason was logic. Nature. The laws of nature as I know them would say otherwise. I've never seen another 90-year-old woman get pregnant by a 100-year-old man. I've never seen that before. I don't think it's possible. The way of women has passed by about half a century ago or so. So, her reason is logic in the laws of nature. Sarah struggled with unbelief. That's what I want us to see first, is that Sarah struggled with unbelief. What I want us to see next is that she struggled through unbelief toward faith. She struggled through unbelief toward faith. Just because God calls you to something doesn't mean that he'll provide the ideal circumstances for you, or even be mindful of your preferences. When I accepted my call into ministry, I said, God, I, I love a tropical climate, and, or maybe like a fly fishing ministry, and he brought us to Greenville. He doesn't care about your personal preferences. That doesn't mean he's unloving, but he's better than that. He's bigger than that. And so it's good for us to remember here that if he calls you to something, it's not always ideal circumstances or personal preference. There are times even by his design that it just won't make sense. God, the laws of nature would offer otherwise for this is going to work. What this means is that what you can see with your eyeballs, what you can see, will not be sufficient for what you need to move forward in faith. Sometimes even the laws of nature are unreliable as fodder for faith. Is it not God who said, is anything too hard for the Lord? So we've clarified these unfavorable conditions. She's old, he's older. And if her and Abraham don't make a baby named Isaac, none of us will ever be called the children of God. So this is a, this is a difficult, strained situation where we're having to move forward in faith. So Even when the conditions are unfavorable, what we're seeing faith does is faith receives power. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. Faith receives power. I am very, very thankful for this verse. Faith receives power. Often we think of faith as only anticipating something in the future. By faith, I'm looking forward to heaven. By faith, I'm looking forward to a time where there's no hurt or there's no pain, there's no disease. At f- by faith, I'm looking forward to being you know, reunited with loved ones. But what I want us to see here is that oftentimes we think of faith as only anticipating something in the future, but faith in the present receives power. Do you hear that? Faith. Yes! Yes, we need more of that. Well done, galleons, on raising a daughter who's listening. She heard it, did you? Faith in the present receives power. For Sarah, this was no small amount of power. 
It was power that took the very vacant, the very old womb, and made her able to conceive a child, made her able to carry that child to term, and made her able to birth that child. That's power. That's power. And it invaded the, the present that looked very unlikely. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you believe that you have power through your faith? That's a question I want us to consider this morning. Do you believe that you presently, not some condition in the future, do you believe that you presently have power through your faith? Is your faith a a faith that receives power? In his book titled To Change the World, it's a great book, James Hunter states, listen closely, to be made in the image of God and to be charged with the task of working in and cultivating, preserving, and protecting that creation is to possess power. I'm going to say that again because a lot of us need to hear that. Because a lot of us have this, there's, a, there's this Nietzschean way of thinking that's called resentment where all we do is when things don't go well, we just play the victim. Christians are way too good at playing the victim, especially in the public square right now. Oh, they're going against what we want. They're going against what we think is best. Stop playing the victim. We have power. Listen, to be made in the image of God and to be charged with the task of working in and cultivating, preserving, and protecting the creation is to possess power. The creation mandate, then, is a mandate to use that power in the world in ways that reflect God's intentions. Use the power that you've been given by God in a way that reflects God's intentions in your very short span here on earth. Please know that while your faith has great power for the future, it also has great power for the present. And we should put it to use to reflect the intentions of our Creator. So at this point, I want to give a little point of clarification This has been helpful for me. It's actually something that I've only kind of reckoned with in the last few months, and it's this. Just because something is a public issue does not mean it's necessarily a political issue. You hear that? Just because something is a public issue does not necessarily mean it's a political issue. It may very well be a creation mandate issue. Rather than playing the victim... It is necessary for Christians to exercise their God-given power in a way that reflects God's intentions. You don't have to apologize for God. When someone goes against what God has said, when something, someone goes against what God has designed, you don't have to, man, I'm really sorry. Uh, you don't want to apologize for God. Faith receives power and you speak as a man or a woman of sincerity, not a peddler of the word. Oftentimes, a pastor or a Christian will step off into the public square and they'll start playing fast and loose with the scriptures to try to gain public approval. That's not what you're there for. Some of us need to divorce the public and the political and realize that not all public things are just political things. Sometimes they have to do with the creation mandate. It is a matter of faith, not politics, to speak up regarding who has control over the womb. Ask Sarah. It's a matter of faith, not politics, to speak up over the definition of what marriage is. It's not hateful to anybody to speak about what God has said about marriage. It's very loving, in fact. It's the only way to truly love, with truth. 
As I was going through my notes, I thought, some of you may be thinking at this point, okay, you lost me, dude. Oh, shutting down. I hate when pastors get all political. It's not political. I've not said one political thing. He lost me. He's getting all political. Matters like these are not political. These don't have to do with blue states. They don't have to do with red states. These are eternal issues. There are many other things. I've mentioned two things that this mentioned far beyond any contemporary ideas regarding them. They're eternal issues that God has been clear on. And to call them political is to oversimplify and minimize the problem. Some of us need to consider what steps we need to take to quit playing the victim and start speaking as one who's been given power by God in a way that represents God's intentions on this earth that he created. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't be unloving. Don't be harsh. Don't be cruel. With gentleness and respect, give a reason for the hope that you have, if indeed it is hope at all. So how ultimately does faith receive power even in an unfavorable circumstance? How does faith receive power when the circumstances are unfavorable? The way that happens is that God is faithful to his promises. This is the best news any of us could ever hear. Turn to Hebrews 11. Turn back to Hebrews 11 if you're not already there. We know from, I think it's 2 Corinthians, it says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So as we talk about the fulfillment of these promises, we know that we're talking about Jesus all over the place. But here, faith receives power the way that you can have power through faith, even in unfavorable circumstances. The way that happens is because God is faithful to his promises. I want you to notice that the source and the base of Sarah's faith, look, it says, it says, um, since she considered him faithful who had promised. That's the part of the verse I'm talking about. She said, God's faithful. He made a promise, and he's faithful to his promises. So what I want you to notice is that the source and base of Sarah's faith was not her own ability to believe. She had to move beyond her own ability. This wasn't a situation where Abraham and Sarah could kind of have a pep talk, say, okay, we can do this, come on. This, this can happen. Yeah, I'm 100. Yeah, you're 90, but this can happen. No, it wasn't enough for a pep talk. They needed to move beyond their natural ability. That's what discipline does. In exercise, it does it the same way. You move beyond what you're naturally able to do. Guess what? They are certainly not naturally able to have a baby. So by faith, they need to move beyond that. And the source of that is that God makes promises and he's faithful to them. She struggled. At first, she doubted. The thing that was being called to, that she was being called to, seemed ridiculous, unbelievable, and laughable by all natural accounts. The only thing that made it not ridiculous and unbelievable and laughable was that there was a promise attached to it that had been spoken from the mouth of God who is faithful and always keeps his promises. That's the only thing that makes this whole reality that would affect every offspring from then on not ridiculous. She scoffed at God. God disciplined her. He held her accountable, and she repented of her unbelief. The entire basis of her belief was that God made promises, and God is faithful to his promises. At first, having a baby seemed beyond the realm of possibility. But when God rebuked Sarah and he made the promise, this time next year I will return and you will have a son, that promise was the basis for her repentance and her faith. That was the moment where she said, I'll see you next year, apparently with a baby. God's promises are also the main source of our faith. 
I don't want you to make the mistake that growth and faith is the result of reaching down deep inside of yourself to find motivation and strength to be faithful. If you're fighting against unbelief, you need to go to God's promises. If you're fighting against unbelief, take the fight to God's promises. Don't try to reach down deep inside. It's dark in there. Take the fight to God's promises. Two things to consider here. First, fight against unbelief. Fight against unbelief. I've, I've heard people quote the verse of the, there was a father in scripture whose child was demon possessed and the demon was throwing this guy's child into a fire and into water and convulsing the child, trying to injure the child. And he goes to God and says, God, please heal my child. And, God, and Jesus is saying to him things about faith. And gosh, you guys have to believe. How long am I going to be here with you? And he cries out in this moment of utter honesty and utter desperation. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. That is a very honest prayer. But I've heard people misuse it in a way that can almost try to use it to to substantiate their unbelief. It's like when we sin and we're like, well, Moses killed a guy. I think you're missing the point. Noah got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. I think you're missing the point. We don't use verses like, I believe, help my unbelief, as a means to legitimize our unbelief. The whole point of that man's very honest prayer was to get help for unbelief. Please do not be okay with unbelief. It is not God's design. It is not his intention. He has not given you power through faith so that you can be okay with your unbelief. We all have it. We all have pockets of unbelief. Some big, some small. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. Sometimes you fight through them for a couple hours and it works. Sometimes you fight through them for a lifetime. But don't be okay with unbelief. When you say, I believe, help my unbelief, you are crying to God for help for your unbelief because you're not okay with it. So the first thing is fight against unbelief. And the second part of that is you take the fight to God's promises. That's how we fight against unbelief. You take that fight to God's promises. Do you know God's promises enough to call upon them in times of unbelief? I'm going to share a small sampling of God's promises. And I want you to consider what pockets of unbelief do you have that you need to match up with God's promises so that you can move forward in powerful faith. God has promised to supply every need. God has promised that his grace is sufficient. God has promised that his children will not be ultimately overcome by temptation. God has promised victory over death. God has promised that all things work together for the good of those who love and serve him, that in Christ we're forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God eternally. God has promised that this life is not all that we have to look forward to. God has promised that while we are here on earth, that nothing can separate us from his love, that he will never leave you, that he will never abandon you, that he will never forsake you. That's a small sampling of God's promises. I could go on and on and on and on. So the question is, which of these promises do you need to match up with your unbelief? And if it's not in that little list, go do some digging. Go look through the word because there's promises all over the place that are wonderful for us to match up with our unbelief, to be honest about where we're struggling, and to try to move forward and grow in our faith and to grow in holiness. Now, don't forget the promise that Sarah drew upon. God said that he would return this time next year and she would have a son. Long story short, God made good on his promise. That could be a whole other sermon. Long story short, Sarah 
had an actual baby out of her actual womb, actually named Isaac, and Abraham was actually the baby daddy. It actually happened like that. 190 years between the two of them. Actually, I guess that'd be 192 at that point between the two of them. Unbelievable. But God is faithful. Long story short, God made good on his promise. And what I want you to look at is this beautiful result is explained in verse 12. Hebrews 11, verse 12. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead. Even scripture is careful with how they talk about the old lady and the old man. She's past childbearing years. She's pa- the way of women has, has, has passed. He's just as good as dead. Just good as dead. Can, can a person who's as good as dead make a baby? That's what they're getting at here in Scripture. Therefore, from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as numerable, is, I'm sorry, as the innumerable, Grains of sand by the seashore. The extent of God's blessing is sand and stars. Our family recently took a vacation to the beach. I'm hesitant, I'm careful to call it a a beach. It's Galveston. Um, It was more like some murky water, about 15 feet of decaying seaweed, and then a lot of sand behind that. The point is there was sand, okay, on this shore. Sand and stars. There's no better place than the beach to enjoy sand and stars. You go out, you look out, and there's no light except for maybe the light off of an oil rig and you know, miles away. And what you can do is you can look up and you can see the stars. And they're just beautifully abundant. You can't, you can't count them. The beach is a wonderful place to remember this. Y'all should go tonight if it's clear. Look up and say, hey, look at all those stars. That's the extent of the blessing that came from this old man and this old woman because God is faithful to his promises. Abundant stars, you can see it. The other thing we have is abundant sand. I'm still cleaning it out of the car. I'm still cleaning it out of the chairs. I mean, we went to the beach a few years ago, and we go to soccer games, and every single time we take the little chairs out to sit at the soccer game, there's more sand from a beach trip half a decade ago in the chairs. The point is innumerable sand and stars. That's how massive this blessing is from God. You are an example and a result of the sand and stars type of blessing that came from God through the faith of Sarah and Abraham. So here's what I want you to see. Sarah and Abraham did not have the power within themselves to bless the nations. But God took Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness and multiplied it like sand and stars. They only had one baby. Now, that was pretty impressive because they were old, but they only had one baby. But how numerous is the blessing of that offspring? As numerous as the sand and the stars. So what God did is he took their faithfulness and he multiplied it like sand and stars. And what I just want us to consider real soberly this morning, consider what God might do when you speak up and exercise the power that he's given you. A discussion about God's design for life on earth A discussion over the water cooler or whatever about God's design for for even marriage, about how beautiful it is to consider the many other options than abortion, 
Those, those discussions are like ripples in a big pond. And when we see God look at this old man and this old woman, and he, multi, he blesses all the generations of the earth like sand and stars because he made them able to have one baby, just consider what God might do through your faithfulness. This is not, this is not hocus pocus. This is reality. We serve a mighty God who takes the faithfulness and he multiplies it like sand and stars. So consider if you speak up, if you exercise power, if you decide to go ahead and finally call Theresa Sadler and get involved with the Rafa Clinic, if you decide to respond to things you're hearing around you, consider how God might take it and multiply it just like he did with Abraham and Sarah. You are an example of that multiplication. And like Sarah and Abraham, we're a part of a bigger story, something that is much bigger than ourselves. Brad mentioned that last week. We are a part of a bigger story, something that is much bigger than ourselves. What was going on with Abraham and Sarah? For them, remember, he was as good as dead. So it wasn't about raising him up and graduating him from college and and seeing him get married. He was as good as dead before he conceived the dude. So this was always about something much bigger than just the two of them. And you have to remember that we are a part of a bigger story, something that's much bigger than ourselves. So the question that I will close with in the sermon is, does your life have a trajectory that reflects the truth that you're a part of something bigger than yourself? Does your life have a trajectory? Does the content of your day reflect that you are a part of something bigger than yourself? As we conclude and prepare to take the supper, I want us to look at verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16 are interesting. Next week, we'll skip forward to the faith photograph with Abraham and Isaac. But this this batch of verses here is sort of like a hinge, a hinge that the door of faith swings upon. You could take verses 13 through 16 and apply them to any of the faith photographs, and it applies for all of them. So listen to these verses. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus, not just think thus, speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you believe that? And does that affect the way that you live? I said these verses are sort of a hinge that the door of faith swings upon. And what I'm getting at is that everyone who is faithful, everyone who might make the big hall of faith in Hebrews 11, or who might live a quiet life of faithfulness that's not so spoken of, the thing that we all have in common if we're moving forward and the kind of faith that receives power is that we are expecting a better homeland. Do not settle for this earth. Do not settle for this earth. It will let you down. The thing we all have in common in our faith is that we are seeking a better homeland. If we don't believe God's promises regarding eternity and a new heavens and a new earth, our expectations for this place will be entirely too imbalanced. In my original notes, I wrote that our expectations for what we have on earth will be too high. 
But I, I thought, no, in light of eternity, the expectations would actually be too low. What that means is that if we don't believe in a new homeland, if we don't believe in a new heavens or new earth, if we don't walk and talk as sojourners and exiles on earth, if we don't do those things, our hopes for what the joy that we'll take from this earth will be entirely too high and too temporary and not eternal enough in their perspective. People with an eternal perspective have eternal hopes. People with an eternal perspective have eternal goals. People with an eternal perspective have an eternal expectation for what God has in store. I've previously confessed that in my struggle with anxiety, I became the kind of person that would go on vacation and I couldn't enjoy it because it will end in a few days. Now, I'm convinced I'm not the only weirdo who's done that. I'm convinced there's people here who struggle with that same craziness. But you go on vacation and it's Tuesday and you're like, ah, Friday's coming, I have to load up the car, get all the sand vacuumed out, go home, back to my job. And you can't enjoy vacation. You kind of make it miserable for everybody else. Not a real sojourner perspective there. I recently read this. I wonder if the reason some of us must have the picture-perfect vacation might be because we don't really believe in heaven and a coming new creation. Ah. Well, that's a kick in the spiritual teeth, isn't it? Good grief. I'm going to read that again. I wonder, this is travel season. Let it sink in. Half y'all won't be here next week. I wonder if the reason some of us must have a picture-perfect vacation might be because we don't really believe in heaven and the coming new creation. He goes on to say, And ironically, the uptight parent who puts heaven-like pressure on family outings will oftentimes make it seem more like hell for everyone else. You ever been on the receiving end of that? You ever been on the giving end of that? Making it miserable because it's not perfect. It's always the worst at family pictures. Everyone's dressed up in the right way. We're all sitting in the sand. The, the, the deal's just right. And my son just wants to scream and eat a sucker. That's all he wants to do. It's like when you tell him to smile, he screams. Take a picture. We're a happy family. We want to capture this moment. You're ruining it. It's ridiculous. Smile. Throw the love smile. Heaven-like pressure on family outings will oftentimes make it seem more like hell for everyone else. The reality is this. People who can't enjoy vacation because it will end will eventually become people who can't enjoy life because it will end. People who can't enjoy vacation because it will end will become the kind of people who can't enjoy life because it will end. This life, temporary, earth stuff, flesh stuff. So like Brad said last week, we must have shallow roots. So as we distribute the elements for the supper this morning, I want to urge you to consider this question. In what ways am I seeking a better homeland? And in what ways am I not? In what ways am I actually seeking something that God has promised? And in what ways am I forgetting what God has promised and holding way too closely, way too tight to temporal, earthly, fleeting things? Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the faith photograph that we have of Sarah. I'm thankful that in Sarah you have shown us one who was not perfect, one who struggled with unbelief, but one who struggled through her unbelief to faithfulness. I am so thankful, Lord, that you have shown us this morning 
that faith receives power that affects how we move presently, not just how we live eternally. I'm also thankful for the reminder this morning, Lord, that you are a God who keeps his promises. First, thank you for making promises to a very undeserving people. Second, thank you for never, ever, ever breaking any of those promises. Thank you for having a perfect record of faithfulness. Lord, my hope and prayer this morning is that we would see that we're on the receiving end of the blessing that you gave to Abraham and Sarah, and and we're part of a story that's much bigger than ourselves. I pray that we would anticipate the ways that when we are faithful in small things, that you could multiply that and make that as innumerable of a blessing to others as sand and stars. You are great and greatly to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote in a book called The Problem with Pain. He said, The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. It may not sound very encouraging at first, but listen to it again. The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he's scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. That may need to be your mantra for your next family vacation. We're never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and would pose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath, football match, have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, I-N-N-S, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. So for those who are seeking a better homeland, those are the ones who will receive power by faith. Those who are settling for what this earth has to offer will be found faithless, powerless, and inevitably let down. So this supper is refreshment on our journey home. So in faithful and powerful anticipation of a much better homeland, take and eat. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in worship, my prayer is that we would do so wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray that we'd be honest about our faith and allow the things we've engaged in Scripture this morning to um, not be things that we only hear, but that we would aim to be not only hearers of the word, but doers only. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.